0: Welcome to Brain LeVette. We are delighted to be joined by Eric Sampson from Rhodes College. Eric, would you like to start with a thought experiment?
1: Sure. Imagine a world in which, among ordinary folks, there is widespread, deeply entrenched disagreement about morality and politics. And not just about fringe issues, I'm talking about longstanding, entrenched disagreement about what I'll call the life-shaping questions, the kinds of questions you have to answer in order to know how to prioritize the many things that you could be doing with your life. So I'm thinking of issues like uh, the value or disvalue of marriage or monogamy or having children, the proper role of the state, whether you have any obligation to obey it, distributive justice, our individual duties to aid the desperately poor, whether capitalism is worth supporting or resisting, the nature of race, sex and gender, which wars are just or unjust, the morality of abortion, the morality of meat eating, our individual duties to mitigate climate change, our duties to rectify uh, historical injustice and so on. We could continue this forever. Many of the, these questions are very central to our practical lives. Now, imagine that they is very little agreement among uh, ordinary folks about how to, to live our lives in this way. Now, as I've described that world, that might sound bad to you, but you might have hope that in this fictional world, there will be a group of people who are specially trained to think about these issues. And suppose that's true. There is such a group. And we could even imagine that there are literally tens of thousands of them across the globe, each having undergone extensive training and thinking about these issues for the better part of a decade, each now getting paid comfortable salaries to teach about and investigate these questions for a living they have fancy offices, they have big leather-bound books, beautiful mahogany shelves for them, and fancy titles. Surely you might think they will have thought carefully about these questions and reached agreement, even if the ordinary people haven't. And we can just defer to those people. But suppose I make this hypothetical world even more of a nightmare by telling you that even these supposed experts can't agree about these issues. In fact, not only do they disagree deeply about uh, many of these issues, even when they agree, it's pretty discouraging. Because even when they agree, have different explanations for the conclusions about which they agree. Some think that the correct answers to these questions are explained by reference to the consequences, others by reference to our maxims or our intentions, others by reference to our character traits such as virtues or vices, others by reference to what it would be reasonable for people to agree to under certain conditions and so on. In other words, for each of the life-shaping questions, there are many excellent philosophers who have thought through them as carefully as anyone possibly could, And they occupy entirely different views for entirely different reasons.
2: I'm guessing what we're talking about here is moral disagreement. The fact that there's deep-seated, fundamental moral disagreement on just about everything in even our world, not just the hypothetical world that you're talking about. But even in our worlds, there's- That's right. So the punchline is, that's our world. So we could cut this episode short because I've got the answer, right? So the answer is utilitarianism. That's the answer. So once once you know that utilitarianism is true, then you've got the answer to all those questions. Now, of course, you're not going to be convinced by that, and neither is Mark, because he's not a utilitarian. But I think that's only half a joke. So the half that's serious is that I do think that's the answer. The half that's a joke is acknowledging that a lot of people think this way, that there is only one answer, and that anyone who doesn't see that is just fundamentally wrong. They're just missing something absolutely crucial about the world. There's a certain thought that hasn't crossed their mind. And so there's no real point in listening to them. I know the answer to this question.
1: Good. First of all, I commend you. So ultimately, I'm going to take a position similar to yours. It's not going to be utilitarianism, though. I think some other kind of view is probably correct. But just to give you a sense of why many people are going to be dissatisfied with what you just said, Jason, they're going to say, Jason, who do you think you are? You, sure, you've thought carefully about this, but don't that Francis Cam is out there and and uh, I'm I'm only thinking of utilitarians at the moment, Christine Korsgaard and Rosalind Hursthouse and Elizabeth Anscombe, these people, surely you will agree, are your epistemic peers. That is, they're people who are just as epistemically virtuous as you, who know the arguments just as well or better than you do. And yet they've come to different conclusions. What justification do you have, Jason, and anybody else who takes that position, for thinking that you're in some special position to know these moral truths, if you think you are in such a special position, you're intellectually arrogant. And that is, and it's irrational to be intellectually arrogant. That is, you may hold this view, but uh, you don't have good evidence for it. That is, uh, you aren't being properly responsive to the evidence that you have, you're irrational.
2: Yeah, that's going to that, that's going to be the response. And every person is going to be asked that. So every person who comes up with a, a solution to every problem is going to be asked, but why are you in a special epistemic position? How come we should trust you
1: Excellent. Yeah. So you're tracking with my response to these sorts of things, which is, look, ultimately, we're all in this predicament and we all have to take a stand on what we think is going on here. So a common thing to say is, oh, you should just be agnostic about these really controversial questions. That's because you're not in a position to know for sure which one of these right or even with good justification. So you ought to be agnostic about all these questions. Of course, the big problem with that is itself a view, a take about how you ought to respond to these questions, itself highly controversial. And we could just spin this around and say, you who that we be agnostic about controversial questions, why do you think that's the uniquely correct view? And furthermore, given your own views about these matters, aren't you just another intellectually arrogant um, person who is insisting that you're right in the face of all this disagreement from people equally as sharp as you? So great. I think that's actually the right thing to say. Let me try another thing at you. Though. Let me throw another sort of challenge that might arise. It's an epistemic challenge as well. There are actually metaphysical challenges on the basis of all this disagreement. Well, let me throw another epistemic one at you. Ultimately, I'm not convinced by it, but here's how it goes. Oh, Jason, don't you see that the way you reached utilitarianism was you just thought really hard about it. So you, maybe you have some intuitions about particular cases and you try to systemize those intuitions into a formal theory. That's how you got utilitarianism. That's how it was formulated. So you use this method called reflective equilibrium or something like that. Cool method, but guess what? When other people use that very same method, they come to vastly different conclusions with it. So it looks like this method that you have that lots of people are using spits out all kinds of different conclusions. And if you have this method that you can see spits out incompatible conclusions, you can't think that it's a reliable method. So the challenge here is not, oh, there's somebody just as smart as you. It's, the thing that you're using, the sort of line of reasoning or the method of reasoning that you're using is transparently unreliable. And if you have a method that spits out outputs that you know to be unreliable, you can't be justified in believing the outputs
0: of that. So I wonder about this. As you say, the reflective equilibrium is this idea that we have a theory and we then go and see what particular moral answers are going to come out of that theory. And then we test those answers against our ordinary intuitions. And sometimes the intuitions must yield and sometimes the theory must yield. And you just say you move back and forth and it seems like the difficulty is both sides using this method will wind up with different answers and it seems like the difficulty there is that some people just fundamentally disagree about the intuitions now let's think about a different kind of disagreement let's say you've got flat earthers and round earthers there is some actual fact of the matter answer on that question and you could go and investigate it it's not just a matter of looking at what your intuition said your intuitions might very well tell you the earth is flat. That's how you perceive it. It's very hard for us to perceive a world that is round unless we start getting satellite footage and this other evidence. But in moral questions, it's not clear what evidence we could rely upon to resolve those questions. You might think, as you said, the agnostic position seems like the right position to have on certain kinds of questions. So some people say, is there a God? We say, well, we don't have direct evidence, so maybe we should just say we don't know. And then there's degrees of agnosticism. So you might say, for example, I don't know without a shadow of a doubt that there's no Santa Claus, but there seems to be very little evidence for it. So I'm gonna have this level six out of seven uh, on a Likert scale, agnosticism about it. I'm pretty damn sure there's no Santa. If one day I'm inspecting my chimney and looking at my cookies and there's this big red guy and there's a bunch of reindeer on my roof, I'll revise my mind. Mm -hmm. So what would be the kinds of things that could cause us to revise our minds in the moral sector?
1: In my own case, I think that you're going to just have to use reflective equilibrium. So we really have nothing other than just considering different cases, making intuitive judgments about them and then systemat- systematizing them. Uh, that's not just the method of moral inquiry. That's the method of philosophical inquiry. And so there's a challenge that I just posed about reflective equilibrium, one thing that you could say is, look, you could challenge the method of reflective equilibrium and try to show that none of our moral beliefs are justified because we use this method. And it's unreliable. When you get into the details of the arguments that go in that direction, what you'll notice is that they have epistemic premises. Well, here's something that's unfortunate about epistemology. It's also deeply controversial. It's also, its method is also reflective equilibrium. And if you concluded that all of our moral beliefs are unjustified because of the method that we're using is unreliable, you'd have to conclude that about our epistemic beliefs as well. But when people present these challenges, they appeal to epistemic principles to try to justify their skepticism about morality. And so it looks like they're going to undermine themselves again by casting doubt on this method. It's they're going to cast out on the very arguments that they use, which rely on conclusions that have been arrived at by means of that method. So all I've said right now is just that, whoa, this is a big mess. It's not clear how to resolve the mess. I have some suggestions about how to resolve it. But for now, the point is just that it doesn't look like any very quick and easy dismissal of our moral views is going to work very well because that they're all going to rely on at some point are taking a stand on some metaphysical or epi- epistemological principles, some philosophical principles that are themselves going to be highly controversial. We're all in that position. Even the people who press at me, especially they're, they're like, Eric, you are this, this more realist, this person who thinks that we can come to know the moral truths and you are pretty confident about that, but you're either you know arrogant or you're using a method that you can't rely on. I just want to say, guys, we're all in the same situation here. We all have to at some point rely on epistemological principles, our metaphysical principles, all of them going to be deeply controversial. I have to do that. You have to do that. And now the puzzle is where to move from here. So what what you might conclude from all that is, okay, fair enough. So like maybe we shouldn't have been uh, offering epistemological challenges to our moral beliefs instead of we should have been offering metaphysical challenges to our moral beliefs. This is what JL Mackey does. This is what Brian Leiter does. Maybe what we should have concluded is just a metaphysical conclusion, which is that there's no fact of the matter about these questions. That would explain why we can't agree about it. It's because there's no fact of the matter about it. So apparently in the old days, there was a big controversy about whether the moon was male or female. They couldn't resolve that particular disagreement, why couldn't they resolve it? Here's one good explanation. There's no fact of the matter about whether the moon is male or female. There just are no male or female facts for moons. And you might think similarly, there is no fact of the matter about what the just immigration policy is, about whether monogamy is the way to live or not the way to live, about about what to do about historical injustices. That's precisely because there are no injustices, and that's why nobody can agree about what to do. So here, this is a metaphysical conclusion. It's There's no fact of the matter about these questions that you're discussing. That's why no one agrees. And that's the best explanation of what's happening with all this disagreement, not only among ordinary folks, but also among moral philosophers. And that would be that would vindicate a kind of error theory. That is the kind of view that everybody talks as if there are moral truths. They want there to be moral truths. But as a matter of fact, there is no such thing.
2: So I. I don't want to go down the moral anti-realism route as a moral realist myself. I understand that there are people that do so. We've had a guest on the show, Sean Stanley, who's a moral anti-realist, and he raises arguments for the position that you've just given, and I don't find it compelling. So I'm going to offer a suggested solution for settling the epistemic problem. It's not a solution I like, but it's a solution that's gained a lot of traction in the last few decades. So the solution is this. Mark earlier said, we don't have a way of verifying. So we don't have a way of checking our moral facts or our moral claims or intuitions, right? But perhaps there is a way, which is surveying. There's this new form of moral philosophy called experimental philosophy, where they go out and just like a psychologist will survey people's attitudes on something, or a sociologist, so will a philosopher. So a philosopher will go out and uh, conduct research, with the right research methodology, just like any other social scientist would, and find out, do you think that uh, we should push the fat man off the bridge to stop the trolley from hitting the five people on the tracks? And he'll ask a whole lot of people. And let's say 95% of them say, don't push the fat man off the tracks. Then you've got the answer. The answer is, it is wrong to push the fat man off the tracks. So what is wrong with the experimental philosophy solution to this problem?
1: Good, yeah. So you could take a poll and see what people think. One problem with that is it's going to depend, I mean, what conclusions you get is going to depend on the time that you take the poll. So if we take it 400 years ago and we ask about slavery, a lot of people are going to think it's totally just. In fact, even slaves may well think, well, if I could get some slaves, I would definitely do it. Unfortunately, I'm in this position where I have to, I happen to be the slave. It's not as though slavery is intrinsically unjust. It's just that I happen to be on the, the short end of this whole deal. So that would suggest that slavery is ultimately permissible. Now, you might just bite that bullet and say, yeah, it was back then. But a lot of people think, no, it can't be the case that the moral truths, what we, the way we ought to live, is dependent entirely on the, how people, as a matter of fact, believe we ought to live. So, it, another sort of objection to this is going to be that it tries to derive uh, the truths about how we ought to live from the truths from descriptive truths, truths about pe- what people believe we ought to do. And it doesn't seem like there's any connection between those things. It doesn't seem that just because somebody believes or even a group of people believe that something is just that it is, in fact, just. And then I guess one other thing would just be it would suggest that cultures are infallible about about moral questions, that if you just survey a bunch of people, they couldn't possibly get it wrong. And it seems like morality is the kind of thing that you could get wrong, that it's not just a matter of uh, taking a poll. Now, look, a convinced relativist is going to say, no, I bite all those bullets. And uh, what do you say to that kind of person? You say, I don't know. There, there may be nothing more that you can say. One thing I, do, I wouldn't want to suggest is that we have that there's some method or there's some way that you can convince literally everyone to agree on a particular thing. That's not true in morality, but that's also not true in any other domain of reality. It's not true about science. It's not true about medicine. It's not true about really anything. So in this respect, the, the fact that we can't convince everybody of, of a particular view, that doesn't cast a unique doubt on morality or philosophy in general. It's a problem for everyone.
2: The Experimental philosopher might have one response, which is to say, perhaps the answer is not from a representative poll taken right now. It's the answer that would be given in a representative poll at the end of time. So in other words, this poll will never actually happen. But if we were to think about the results of this poll, uh, that would give you the answer. And it's an interesting solution because it draws on something like Rawls's veil of ignorance thought experiment. So the idea is, if you were to take the ideally rational person, what would they say about the way society should be structured? And the solution is, well, if we were to take everyone's interests into account over time and assuming some sort of moral progress over time and that societies get closer and closer to believing moral truths, and then at the end, we all know.
1: Yeah, good. Uh, Several things. One thing is that it's, uh, you could fit, if if, suppose you think, look, the view is uh, the moral truths are what people would agree to when you take the poll at the end of time. One problem with that is just that you could, it seems like that poll is going to be manipulable. I suppose I'm a tyrant. I can just kill everyone. I could kill all the virtue ethicists and the Kantians. And so that utilitarian will, as a matter of fact, come out at the end of time to be the correct one. Or if I'm Kantian, I could just kill all the utilitarians and hope that Kantianism comes out. It seems like it's very contingent. Which one comes out on top? It depends on. Things like whether the Kantian tyrants come to take control. The other one is just that it depends on what you're surveying. Suppose you're surveying people's views about morality at the end of time. One question you're going to have is a priority question, which is, okay, so that's what people believe, but do they believe that because it's true or uh, is it true because they merely believe that? It looks like, again, we're going to have this issue, which is why would it be the case that just because a bunch of people believed it, it turned out to be true, it seems more likely that they hold their moral beliefs because they're apprehending some truth independent of them. And in that case, then what we want to know is well, then what determines those truths, and then we'll go just independent of people's attitudes. Maybe the if people's attitudes helps as an epistemological guide, but it wouldn't be the grounds of the moral truths. And what we want to know, if we're doing philosophy, at least I want to know, is what makes it the case that these are the moral truths, not just how do we come to know them? Though that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think
0: those are good objections. If it turned out at the end of history that the consensus view was that the earth is flat, it wouldn't make it so. It would just be the case that a lot of people were very confused about the particular facts. I mean, it did not mark, right? That wouldn't be the consensus. There's progress. There's scientific progress.
2: There's people that go up in spaceships and look at pictures of the world and they see it's round and they dismiss the view that the earth is flat. So over time, we progress through our physics inquiries and don't we do the same with our moral inquiries?
1: Well, what's interesting there is that the, the agreement is secured by the mind independent facts, the opinion independent facts. That's what, that's what explains why there's agreement at the end of time. And if there's agreement at the end of time, but it's just explained by people apprehending the truths, then that's cool. But again, the sort of truth maker was the mind independent moral truths rather than the opinions.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Jason's point is as society progresses, we gather more and more evidence different from our beliefs, and we can use the beliefs as a proxy for the evidence because we think people are good at perceiving reality. It's just not so clear in the moral cases that works very well because where's this extrinsic evidence? One of the sort of uses, I think Sam Harris says this account. He says, if you think that if you're comparing two worlds, one in which there is uh, eternal, unending suffering that's of a very extreme nature, and one in which there isn't that, and you have to pick between the two worlds, he thinks it's a very obvious choice. The one with suffering is a worse world. We can start using normative language better and worse. So if you don't accept that premise, then we just got conversation anymore. And I think that's the something you alluded to earlier, really, is that once you have these fundamental disagreements, you basically end up having to, Joel Feinberg called it, he said, all moral discussions are to the person. If you don't agree on the fundamental premises, the conversation must end. You can speak to utilitarian on their own terms and say, well, given that you believe this view, here's all the things that you know come out of that view, and maybe you're incorrect in some of the later steps that you've made, but you can't really question the fundamental premise for them because it's an article of faith. And I think that's the difficult part, right, is when we have these quite good rivaling accounts where we can't really scrape beneath the surface of that. The person just says, I'm a Kantian," and I, I just think you're intuitively wrong to be utilitarian. And then there's something dissatisfying about that. But maybe you end up having these, let's say, three or four plausible accounts of morality. And then in practice, what happens is that they generate lots of very similar answers. All reasonable accounts of morality are going to say that you shouldn't torture someone for its own sake, for fun, without any benefit. Everyone's going to agree to that. But you give a series of cases where people are going to disagree, and it's quite hard to convince them outside of the framework. Maybe there's some utilitarians who eat meat, uh, and maybe it's a matter of saying, well, if you actually count up the utils properly, you'll see there's an immense amount of suffering in factory farming, and it would be immoral for you to do this, but you have to use their own language. If you're a Kantian, you've got to say, well, maybe you should be including animals as persons in your account. If you're a contractarian, you've got to say, you're right, animals can't contract, but there are other beings that can't contract as well. You're happy for us to do these horrible things to other non-persons the severely mentally retarded, test out, as you say, the sort of other intuitions in their theory, but it seems like we can do some work, some kind of consensus, but there'll be some areas you say, we just go, well, we now run out. What do we do?
1: Yeah, that's right. As you point out, look, you could have rivaling theories, all pretty good, all going to overlap in many of these cases. And so one thing I would just say is we should be alive to the possibility that actually one of these groups is correct. Now, maybe they got lucky, or maybe they just reason flawlessly and other people reason pretty well, but they made a mistake somewhere. Jason nailed it and the virtue ethicist screwed up somewhere along the way. They forgot to carry the two or whatever. That could well be the case. So we need to just be open to that. Another one is, yeah, most of these theories are going to overlap on many of these issues. And so in terms of practi- getting along practically, there may not be huge differences. Though I don't know. The debate between consequentialists and non-consequentialists seems pretty deep and actually practically, really. So I don't know how sanguine we could be about the prospects of living together peacefully without coming to agree on a particular moral theory. But at some point, I do want to venture venture an answer to how you
2: should, in fact, think about these things. I think Jason's basically on the right track, but yeah. Given that I'm on the right track, I'm going to go off track and offer an alternative position. Suppose it was the case that there are moral facts. In other words, suppose it is the case that there's a series of statements that are true, with moral claims within them. So one of them would be, it is wrong to kill a busload of children for no reason, right? It is wrong to torture babies for fun. And there's a series of these claims. It, it is wrong to pull Mark's hair for fun. It is wrong to make Mark cry. So there's a series of these claims that that we all agree are true. The utilitarian agrees is true. The Kantian agrees is true. The virtue ethicist, the contractarian <laughs> believes it's true. We all believe it's true. Suppose it was the case that these moral facts are real, but not the theories that support those facts. So, suppose utilitarianism is false, Kantianism is false. All these theories are incorrect, but the moral truths are true. That would explain why we disagree about why these moral claims are true, but it would account for the fact that we all, regardless of which theory we come from, agree to an enormous overlapping set of moral truths.
1: Yeah, good. As you're imagining, is there a true moral theory and it's just none of the ones that we currently have? Or is it that, no, there's just a bunch of truths out there and there is no theory unifying
2: them? Yeah, the latter. Yeah. I'm thinking, would it be possible for that to be true?
1: Yeah. It seems weird, but I can't see why it would be literally impossible. It could be that there are such truths uh, and there's just no theory unifying them. There's just a bunch of disparate truths out there about how we morally ought to live. you're going to have questions about how do we come to know these truths if there are these mind-independent truths out there? They're not unified by any theory. How do our flesh and blood brains come to be in contact with these truths? Now, maybe there's a, a story, but it would be a really interesting story about why that would be the case. I think that's why most philosophers have thought, no, there's got to be some theory, something unifying these and we're glomming on to at least the the basic truths and then from there, reasoning our way to the more sophisticated truths. So um, I still hold out hope that there's a theory uh, that unifies all these things, but I can't rule out the possibility that reality is just weird. Reality is already weird. We know this. And it could be weird in the way that there are these truths independent of our minds. They're not unified by
2: anything, but we somehow managed to come to to understand them. I, but but you know, that objection doesn't convince me. I'm busy holding a position I don't hold, by the way. But that's, that objection doesn't convince me because if the argument is there must be a unifying theory because that theory is what provides the bridge between us and these moral truths, it's the epistemic access point. It's how we get to know that these truths are true. It's the mechanism we use. So that's not going to work because it seems we all have different mechanisms. So one of us, uh, thinks Kantianism is true. Mark over there. And I think utilitarianism is true. And someone else is a crazy virtue ethicist. And it seems like we all have very different intuitions about what that theory is, especially non-philosophers, right? right. If you were to ask people why this particular moral truth is true, they might give a different answer to why another moral truth is true. In one instance, they'll say, it judges do this all the time in the law. In their judgments, they will, in, in the often in the same sentence, they will mention dignity and suffering. And it's like, whoa, man, hold on. Wait, you're both a Kantian and a utilitarian in the same sentence? That's crazy. But the point is there's not a single unifying theory that we all think about. Uh, we seem to juggle them. So it doesn't seem like those theories are providing that epistemic access point.
1: Yeah, you may well be right about that. That, yeah, that it does look like people actually, they don't rely on theories at all, at least ordinary people when they come to know the moral truths. They're perfectly good at uh, coming to understand that what's good, what's bad, what they ought to be doing and what they ought not to be doing without the help of any sort of moral theory. At this point, suppose that we have these two competing theories on our hands, which is one, according to which there are no truths. And all this disagreement among us is uh, caused by what Mackie would say is like our preferences about how to live. That's why we disagree. We just have different preferences about how to live. Brian Leiter says, oh, we, have, we disagree about morality because we all have different psychological needs. So some people want to be seen as the kind of people who care about suffering and care about, they're very rational and calculating. Those are the people who are going to be attracted to utilitarianism. There are some who want to be seen as the kind of people who don't make trade-offs with these really important beings. So they're going to be attracted to Kantianism and so on. In any case, there's going to be some explanation for why we're drawn to the theories that we are. But as a matter of fact, there's no truth of the matter. That's one theory. And then there's another theory where there's just all these truths out there. They're not unified by anything, and but we somehow come to, to grasp them. And now you have this question just like, which one is the, is the more plausible alternative? I think a lot of people are going to find the view that there's just no facts of the matter about these things. We're really just expressing our preferences when we make judgments about morality and politics. And I guess that if I had to choose between those two, uh, I don't want to be an error theorist, but I guess in that case, I might just be an error theorist if those are my two options.
0: So is there any convincing the the moral nihilist? How would you persuade them that they're mistaken? It seems like you can't rely on any kind of fact of the matter. You can give them all the bullets to bite. You can say, don't you think it's wrong to torture this baby to death just for fun? And they go, no, I don't think so. That language doesn't make any sense. I don't see how it's it's a persuadable position. It also seems like I, I remember going on a date with someone once and she said to me, why don't you eat meat? And I said, well, meat is murder. She said, well, I don't think murder is wrong. And I thought, one or two options here. The one is you're a philosopher and the other one is you're a psychopath. Let's ask some more questions and find out. <laughs> and I think it's quite hard to distinguish that psychopathic view from the from moral nihilist view. Just the one is, let's say, held out of a self-interest um, and the other one is held out of sort of intellectual curiosity. But if we can't have the conversation, is isn't a matter of going, well, we just don't need to have the conversation. The reasonable people in the room are going to adopt some kind of moral position. We can ignore the psychopaths and the nihilists and get on with the show. The other one, as you say, is we talked about these, let's say, moral facts, or you can even have a moral toolbox. So there's just certain things that most reasonable people are going to agree on. They're going to say you generate this either through utilitarianism or through some deontological account or contractarianism applied ethicists like doing this, they say, we're trying to resolve a particular problem, let's use the moral toolbox. Regardless of what particular grand theory you're attracted to, you're going to get to the same outcome. You find it with with judges where there's it's nine judges sitting on a court and they all hold different upper order views on things. So you can have capitalists and communists and libertarians and radicals, and so they don't agree on the high level theory. But on the particular fact of this case, they can get to the same outcome regardless of their upper level commitments.
1: Yeah, good. To answer the question, is there a way to convince the nihilist? The short answer at least is no, there's not. Um, At least not a consistent nihilist. And that's because the view is entirely consistent. That is, there's nothing uh, contradictory. There's no commitment that the nihilist makes that you could show, at least in virtue of being a nihilist. Now, maybe individual nihilists have commitments where you can show them like, look, no, but this commitment that you have is inconsistent with your nihilism. But if you want to be a perfectly consistent nihilist, there's no way to show that view is going to be inconsistent. Of course, probably going to be inconsistent with their intuitions. I think even nihilists have the intuition that you shouldn't murder people or torture animals or things like that. But they're going to be willing to give those up in the reflective equilibrium. They're going to say, well, that's, a ca- that's a particular judgment that I'm going to have to give up because the more general theory makes more sense of my reality. The principle here is one that I get from David Enoch. He says, Philosophy can't replace the hangman, which is philosophy can't force you to do something or to believe something. You can't just reason people into really anything. That's unfortunate, but that's also the case, I want to say, with literally every piece of reality you can't convince. You, there, there's not going to be a way to convince, for instance, um, an idealist, somebody who thinks that reality is just ideas in the mind of God. For any sort of thing that you point to, the, to in reality, the idealist says, yeah, that also is an idea in the mind of God. There's literally nothing you can do uh, to that person. Now, does that show that there's no external world, that idealism is true? No, it's just the case that this uh, unfortunate fact about reality that there's going to be people, even really sharp people, perfectly consistent people who can't be brought to see reality as it really is. And I think a lot of people, they think that morality should be able to do that. That's why they have doubts about morality. They think if I can't show the moral nihilist that they're making a mistake and convince them and convince them on rational grounds, show that there's some like mistake that they're making from the perspective of their own worldview, then morality is a, a joke. But I just want to say that's not true of any domain ever. And it's also not true of morality. That's no like discredit for morality. It's not a reason to think that morality is garbage because you can't convince somebody like the moral nihilist who consistently says, I just think it's okay to murder. Uh and that doesn't cast doubt on morality. I think the Kantians think that this is a big challenge. The, the the nihilist is somebody who they're very concerned about. And they want to show from within their own perspective that anytime they act immorally, they're acting against their own principles. So the Kantians, at least some of them, try to show that any agent is committed to the the value of humanity as an end in itself. And they try to show just by acting, you're showing that you, you regard your ends as worth pursuing. But how could it be the case that your ends are worth pursuing unless your valuing confers value? And how could your valuing confer value unless you are yourself valuable? Look, you are yourself committed to the value of humanity as an end in itself. I think those proofs fail dramatically. But the point is, there are people out there who try to do that. I think that's a failed project. But the fact that's a failed project doesn't mean that the project of trying to come to know the moral truths is a failed project, just for the same reason that oh, science isn't a failed project, just because we can't convince perfectly consistent people that there's an external world. And so we don't need to like wait for them to be convinced or have some proof before we can you know carry on with engaging with reality. And I would just want to say the same thing about, in the moral case, I'd want to say, look, there's some people you can't convince. There are people like the perfectly coherent Caligula, as Sharon Street says, who just enjoys torturing people and they're not going to get in trouble for it. And it, it serves all of their desires and all of their interests. They love doing it. You're not going to be able to convince that person that they ought to care about, about not torturing people. But that doesn't mean that it's not wrong to torture people, because as a matter of fact, you could be a perfectly coherent but wrong person. This is one of the big criticisms of coherentism as an epistemological view. You could have perfectly coherent uh, opinions and just not be in contact with reality. And I'd want to say that about the nihilist, the idealist, and basically every part of reality is like that. You can have a theory that's perfectly coherent about that domain, and still it just doesn't connect with reality. Doesn't
2: that worry you? So how, how worried should you be that they're right?
1: Yeah, good. So you definitely should worry that you could be in that similar case because just as the idealist could have a perfectly coherent view, you could yourself have a perfectly coherent view that is also not uh, in contact with reality. So you should worry for sure. But how confident should you be that you are
2: in fact in that scenario? That's what I'm trying to get at. If if you, how high should your confidence be? And if it's not very high, how show you that you know?
1: Yeah. So I think we can't be certain that. Just, we can't be certain that our views are correct in the same way we can't be certain of anything. I guess we would, I guess in general, I think that if you have a theory that some, that reality is a certain way, then how confident should you be that you're wrong? You should be confident that you're wrong to the degree that you have evidence that you're wrong. And so we're all constrained by the evidence that we have. So we could be in this tragic situation where all our evidence suggests that a theory is true, but as a matter of fact, it's not. But the best we have to go on uh, is our evidence. And so we should follow that as best we can. And then if we're in a tragic situation, there's nothing we can do about it. And so we, it doesn't make sense to to worry or to reduce your confidence because um, you, you're already on, acting on the basis or believing on the basis of your evidence.
0: So you've hinted that you do have a solution to this problem. In other words, there's this appears to be this intractable mess and maybe there's a way out of it. So what's our way out of it?
1: Yeah. So there are several messes. One is the metaphysical mess. I'm not going to solve that here. I'm just going to say that we should just keep in mind that there are lots of explanations that realists have given people who believe that there's a reality out there for all this disagreement, and none of them appeal to the idea that there's just no fact of the matter. Instead, it's pretty boring things like ignorance about... um about the empirical facts or just mere disagreement about the empirical facts. Some of our disagreements may be merely verbal. So for instance, lots of debates about race and gender. We may just be using our terms differently. So when we argue about whether something is racist or sexist or something like that, we may just be talking about different kinds of racism that aren't properly distinguished. Some of it's going to be ignorance about moral theories or about what the possibilities are. Some of it's going to be a failure of imagination. Some of it's going to be miscalculation or failures of knowledge about, say, fetal development or just empirical In other words, you're just going to have to piecemeal all the disagreements if you're a realist like me. So that's what you do at the metaphysical level. You say, look, all this disagreement isn't incompatible with there being a reality out there. And then epistemologically, a lot of people have said, look, given all this disagreement, especially among philosophers, you ought to be agnostic about these questions. The first thing is to note that even the agnostic is in this situation where they are holding a view that uh, is itself the subject of tons of disagreement. And so it looks like their view is self undermining. But then the question is, what do we do in light of that? The first thing I think to notice is that the reason people say you ought to be agnostic is because of this concern about epistemic humility. The thought is, if you have a view about morality in the face of all this disagreement, you must think you're really special. You must think you're really smart. And that's not epistemically humble. And if you're not epistemically humble, you're irrational. What I want to say is, no, there are ways to hold views about morality that are still themselves epistemically humble. To look people, really smart people, Francis Cam or Peter Singer in the face and say, you are really smart, but I think you're wrong. And here's how that could be. So what I'm going to try to sketch very briefly is just ways to hold your views in the face of disagreement and yet still be epistemically humble. One thing you could do is, as a result of the disagreement that you confront, reduce your credence that your view is correct, but still hold on to your belief. That is, just reduce your confidence that your view is correct and still hold on to your belief, you might think that the reduction in confidence is itself an expression of epistemic humility. and yet that the, But the confidence that you have is what I call an, an expression of epistemic courage, where epistemic courage is the kind of thing where you are willing to take a risk for the sake of some excellent intellectual good, just as moral courage is when you take a risk with your practical welfare for the sake of some practical good. Intellectual courage is where you take an intellectual risk for the sake of some intellectual good. That's what you're doing when you hold on to your belief. But when you reduce your confidence, you're also expressing humility. You're expressing both virtues and still holding on to your view. Another thing you could do is be a permissivist. That is, you could say, look, Peter Singer, and I'm, so I'm not a utilitarian, and Peter Singer and Jason are my epistemic peers for sure. Well, I'm a permissivist, which is, I think that two people could disagree about a question, have roughly the same evidence, disagree, and both be rational. That is, that reasonable disagreement is possible. And so neither of us are irrational. Neither of us are making a mistake epistemically, at least. Now, of course, at most one of us is correct. That is, at most one of us believes the truth, but neither of us are making a rational mistake. And in that way, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that I'm, no, I'm not suggesting I'm better than you. I'm not like smarter than Jason. That's not why I am right and He's wrong. But we're both responding to our evidence uh, rationally, but at most one of us is correct. The last thing you could do to express both ed- intellectual courage and intellectual humility is you could say, look, I hold my view. But I'm not sure, but you suspend judgment about whether your view is rational. So I think that, say, virtue ethics is true. I don't know. That's the one I'm most sympathetic to. I don't know if I have a view about which first-order ethical view is true. But suppose I think virtue ethics is true, but I'm not sure that's rational. You might think that's also itself an expression of epistemic humility and epistemic courage because I'm willing to take a risk on this really important question, this really valuable question. The risk is in my belief, but the humility is expressed in my credence. So that relies on this sort of split between this, this idea of an all-or-nothing belief and a credence, which it seems like we, bo- we have both of those things and we can use both of those to express the epistemic virtues.
2: So these are very interesting solutions, but I don't think, well, firstly, we know they're not going to convince the nihilists, right? So yeah, you said, we're not going to convince the nihilists.
1: At least not the, con- not the consistent one. There are some inconsistent nihilists and you could probably convince them by showing them, hey, you actually already hold commitments that are on my team. Let me just show you that and you can convince them, but yeah. <laughs> Not the, not the consistent.
2: The problem I have with these solutions is they might not only convince the consistent nihilist, but they might give him some fuel for his fire. Let's just go through one or two of them. So the the first solution, which is to lower your credence, in other words, lower your your confidence that your belief is true, they might say the rational thing to do is to lower that confidence level a lot. So yeah, you'll be epistemically humble, very humble. You'll be in a world where you don't know much at all. Uh, and and it suggests that your beliefs aren't really justified, and so you don't have moral knowledge. So that's a problem with the the credence view. Surely one has to feel that if you disagree with Peter Singer, here's this man, he's an amazing man. He might disagree with you on almost everything, and you start chatting, and you're like, well, how confident should I be in this discussion? On the other two methods of solving this problem, I think there's going to be similar objections. So it's well, aren't you chipping away? at the foundations for moral knowledge by saying, I'm not sure whether this is rational, or on the other hand, by saying the permissive approach, which is it's possible for two fully rational people to have such fundamental disagreement. Doesn't that suggest that our minds, our rationality, just don't really tap very near to the moral truth?
1: Yeah. So let me make sure I get all all your your worries. So the first one is, aren't you chipping away at moral knowledge? Aren't you suggesting that we don't have as much as we uh, otherwise would one thing to say is a little bit but uh, you might think that's exactly as it should be because these moral questions are really hard and any view according to which like we get to have you know full confidence that our views are correct that can't be right because these are really hard questions the true theory better tell us that we can believe something we can believe our moral views but uh, we shouldn't have enormous confidence in them my view does that and i think that's as it should be what was the other thing oh our minds must not be very good at getting at the the truths. I guess I would say, uh, if that's true, then that's also true of the nihilist. And so the nihilist, again, I would just say, what justifies your nihilism? Again, so I have this paper called The Self-Undermining Arguments from Disagreement. When you hear uh, arguments from nihilism from disagreement, they appeal to metaphysical principles or epistemological principles to get to the conclusion that nihilism is true from the fact of disagreement. And to them, I would just say, look, if our minds aren't so good at getting at the truth, how can you be confident that the premises that you're in, in, that you're employing to get to your conclusion are the correct conclusions? It looks like in your efforts to undermine our justification or the metaphysics of morality, you're going to undermine your own premises that
2: you use to get to nihilism. So they're always going to have that sort of problem. I, I just want to probe that a little bit because this is a, a problem in a lot of areas of philosophy where one side accuses the other side of undermining their own argument by making a claim which entails that they can't know one of their premises. And th- th- this, I really struggle to understand those arguments and to make a judgment on whether those arguments are good or bad. Because it seems to me like it all depends on where the reductio goes in this case. Okay, so I-, I-, I wrote my PhD on whether social groups exist. And I'm arguing that there aren't social groups, but I use a whole lot of social terms in my discussion uh, as provisor. It's like, if there were groups, then there would be like this and this, uh, but they can't be like this and this, and so there aren't social groups. And then the response goes, but hold on, you can't use social terms in your discussion about whether there are social groups, because you don't believe that these social terms refer to anything. And your argument, it it undermines itself, right? It's the kind of argument you're making. And I always respond to that by saying, but hold on. You're the one who says they are social terms, so I'm allowed to use them, right, in a reductio to show that there aren't these social phenomena. Can't the nihilist say something similar here, right? So can't he say, I'm allowed to use metaphysical claims and moral claims because you say they're true, but I'm just saying that from that follows this reductio, and so there aren't these moral claims and this moral knowledge.
1: Good. Yeah. So, when nihilists make their arguments against uh, realists, they could be doing one of two things. One would be just offering an internal critique of realism, and for that, you are uh, absolutely—they're totally uh, licensed to use claims that the realist uh, believes in to show that their own view is mistaken. That's right. But as I'm imagining what the nihilists are doing, they're not offering an internal critique of realism. Instead, they're they're, offering—they're—they're employing views that they believe and that they think you ought to believe in order to show that realism is false. And for those, I wanna say, those are their own beliefs. They believe that if there's widespread intractable disagreement about a about a domain, the best explanation for that is that there's no fact of the matter. That's a claim that they endorse. I don't endorse that. That's a claim they endorse in order to get to their conclusion. And I wanna say, given that, a, that's a claim you endorse, you're undermining yourself. Now, but you're right. that This is a mistake that sometimes people make. I'll just give you one example. In the problem of evil, sometimes uh, theists will say, oh, you think there's evil? How could you think that if you're an atheist? Because there's no way that there could be evil. And what the atheist is saying, no, you guys believe in evil. You guys believe God is good. And I'm saying those are inconsistent. And so that in that case, it is right to say, I get to use your concepts because I'm offering an internal critique. Whereas, and, and so what I'm accusing the uh, nihilist of is, I- I'm saying they weren't making an internal critique. They were relying on premises that they themselves believe. And when they do that, now they're committed to undermining themselves because they got to stand on those premises in order to make their critique. But you're right, that's a mistake. And we should definitely be like alert to the different ways that that, that mistake happens.
0: I wonder about this position, which is if the idea is that you can accept that both sides are reasonable, they've gotten a reasonable norms, uh, a reasonable grasp of the facts, they've come to different conclusions of the matter, and you should have the correct amount of credence in your different sets of beliefs why don't we see much movement from one side to the other? Why is it not the case that you have people who were utilitarians for years in the department and they say, you know what, I met someone else who's reasonable on the other side and they've persuaded me and I'm now a convert. Like this just doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that people behave much more like they're in teams. They go, this is my team, and this is what I do, and I really only will modify within my team. So maybe there's some subtle move I should make. So Singer was once a preference satisfaction theorist, and he says, now I'm actually moving back to being a hedonist, but a minor adjustment in the theory. But very unlikely that Singer's going to be persuaded to become a virtue ethicist or a content.
1: This is a great question. I don't know if I have a view about what the exact explanation is. Let me offer a few possibilities and point to the one that I think might be right. So one is just that all these views may be reasonable which is they're all pretty good at accommodating the, what you might call the moral data. That is our intuitions about particular cases. They all do pretty well, and they're all rational. And once you have a rational position, there's no reason, and you're committed to the, the whole theory, it's not going to make much sense for you to move to a, a totally different theory with totally different foundations. Another explanation is they're all rational, but for different reasons. It's because when they began their moral inquiry, the things that they were justified in believing that they could have gone multiple ways, multiple sort of assumptions to to get going would have been rational. They chose the utilitarian ones and proceeded from there to get to utilitarianism. The Kantians began with the Kantian presuppositions uh, that were themselves rational at the start and continued to move on to do the Kantian stuff. So they began with the starting points for rational and then they moved from there. Uh, I kind of like that explanation. And then another one is just that this is all tribalism. That is that, uh, they, they sort of are, as Leiter says, responding to the psychological needs that they have, or they just find them the aesthetic features of the different theories, especially appealing, and those appeal to different kinds of personality traits. And that explains it. So that last one is a debunking or a um, sort of error theory about what's going on. But I just wanted to point out there's two ways it could be where everything is kosher in the sense that no one is making a rational mistake. Now, as I've said, tragically, at best, one of these camps is going to be correct. And that's unfortunate, but that's just the reality that we face. I wish I had better news for you, but I don't. I wish that philosophy could just like reason its way into a perfect agreement, perfect consensus and nail the truths. But unfortunately, I'm not sure it's going to do that. That's why this is a puzzle.
0: What is interesting is we do reach practical consensus about some things. So it used to be the case that we had a consensus that slavery was permissible. And then over a very long period of time, that shifted. Now, it could just be that we're not making any moral progress at all. It just, as you say, tastes change. It used to be the case that everybody thought you should, you know, wear a ruff around your neck, and that was, uh, you know, a very cool, fashionable thing to do. And then we changed our minds, and it is that way. But it it might be that when it comes to the fundamental things, you say philosophers are unlikely to ever reach an agreement. But on big social norms, Western democracies at least seem to merge that direction.
1: Yep. That's encouraging in some ways, and in other ways, it might be discouraging because what's encouraging about it is, of course, that we can live together practically and cooperate and all that stuff. What's uh, a little discouraging is that it looks like our agreement is often the product of just social uh, changes or changes in trends or the incentives that people face rather than them apprehending the moral truths. But of course, that's just the way it goes. Again, there's lots of bad news, which is just that, yeah, our moral uh, beliefs, our political beliefs are influence to some degree, certainly how much, hard to say, but by incentives that we face, the social sort of hoorays and boos that we get when we express certain moral views. So we just have to be on the lookout for it. I think that's more reason to think that you got to do philosophy as carefully as you possibly can, because you're always subject to
2: these sort of distorting influences, things like the social pressures that you face. So I've got a personal question for you, Eric, and philosophers are not allowed to ask these questions. So I'm asking it with my philosopher hat off. If you were to list all of your moral beliefs together with your theoretical moral beliefs, in other words, theories that you hold, you said, for example, that virtue ethics is closest to what you hold, if we were to lump them all in, and of course, some will be different from others, but if we were to lump them all in and ask for an average... Out of a hundred, how certain are you that lump of beliefs is true?
1: That the whole package. I'm pretty confident that I'm like uh, 99% confident that not the whole package is correct. That not the whole package. This is is like the preface paradox. I've written a whole book, each one I believe, but I know that, look, the probability that I nailed all of them, is very low. But I stand by, nonetheless, I stand by each one. So yeah, I think that's, yeah, I stand by each of my moral beliefs. But I know that the package is unlikely to be all correct. But I have more confidence in some views than others. I'm pretty confident about my non-consequentialism. How confident? Really 0.8, 0.85. So when I say really confident, I'm not like 0.999. Not that confident. Um, Because these are hard. And the consequentialism is really flexible. There's lots of ways it could go. It doesn't just have to be hedonistic consequentialism and... So yeah, just to answer the personal question about the numbers in my head, I'm pretty confident about a lot of my moral views, like 0.8 or higher. But in terms of the
2: whole package, very low probability. I find that a fascinating answer. I'm fairly confident in each one, but I'm very confident that at least one of them is false.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true of anybody who writes a book. So this is an old preface paradox. The idea is how could it be the case that you're confident of each claim that you asserted, but when you ask, so when people write prefaces, they're like, any errors in this book are due to me and not to the reviewers or not to the people who have offered comments. How could they consistently say that? You think there's errors in this book and yet you asserted each one? It's because while I think each one is highly probable, I know that the probabilities dwindle as you conjoin each of the claims, the probability that they're all correct is low. But
0: I mean, That seems really reasonable to me. So in other words, if you're saying... I hold this view at 100% and then we add an extra thing and we times that by 0.9, you're going to get to 90. And if we just keep doing that, you're going to eventually merge towards zero. So the more beliefs that you have, and even if it's at high credence levels like 90%, the whole package is going to get to zero. I suppose what's interesting is particular beliefs. So are there beliefs that you say, I'm totally on the fence on this thing, I'm 50-50 on it. And are there particular beliefs that you've held and changed your mind on?
1: Oh, yeah. Tons of views I've changed my mind on. Tons of views about which I'm 50-50. One is like meat eating for sure. I used to be like stone cold meat eater. Could never budge me on that. I I wouldn't say I'm not vegan now, but I'm certainly like way less confident and even confident that factory farming is evil. I have doubt. I'm genuinely uncertain about whether I have obligations still not to eat meat because I'm unsure about whether or not I make a difference when I buy. Meat, but that's a totally different issue. Tons of uh, stuff about the state. I used to think that, of course, the state's justified. It's always justified. And I should do what they say and be a good little boy. I, I'm much less uh, sanguine about the justification of the state and the many things that it does. Immigration. I always thought immigration, like, of course, borders. What's the problem? Everybody has their their land, and you guys have yours. We have ours. But I've become much more skeptical about the justification of borders. So I could actually probably do this all day. I don't know if you want do it, but yes, lots of different views as a result of doing philosophy that I've changed my mind on. I think that's a good thing. I think uh, that what that suggests is that just in many of these cases, I want to believe the thing that I used to believe. It's better. It's more fun to believe that meat eating is totally justified and have no qualms about it, and so on. And and the same with lots of other views, according to which you know uh, that. By holding, I could make people like me better or be less disappointed in me. Yeah, I change my view on on morality all the time just because I think that it's justified to be competent. And some of your views doesn't mean that I think that all of your views can be justified. And some of them you genuinely ought to be unsure about. But that's mostly not because of the disagreement, but because the evidence is so thin. So a lot of people think, once you see all this disagreement, you should suspend judgment. I think that the disagreement is just a symptom of the paucity of the evidence. And that explains why you ought to suspend judgment about many of these issues. It's not because of the disagreement, it's because the evidence is so thin.
2: The animals case is very interesting because it seems there the evidence is clear. So in many respects, we know exactly what's happening. We know that all these animals are being slaughtered, we know they're being eaten, etc. And yet I'm going to say the opposite thing to use, which is that I used to be a vegetarian. And then I studied philosophy and I became a meat eater. It's very interesting that there, it seems there's lots of evidence that's just available. And yet we come to different conclusions. So it's not like philosophy is a religion where it just tells you what to do. And once you start considering these facts, it's just obvious. We had a guest on the show a few episodes back, Mike Humer, who said that it's just self-evidently true that you should be a a vegan. Obviously you should. Anyone who thinks otherwise is just deluded and the reasons they give are absurd. And if they were to just listen to themselves, they'd know that it's crazy. And I think he's just wrong about that. I think there's fundamental disagreement on a lot of these issues, which is easily defensible.
1: Yeah. I wonder in the case of Mike Humer and maybe even you, if our disagreement is empirical. I think the factory farming is, is bad, but I just don't think that I make a difference, or at least I'm I'm leaning towards I don't make a difference when I buy meat. And that's why. So I do still eat meat, but I just, you know I'm sort of wary about it. Whereas previously I was like, I don't have any qualms about eating meat. So that's the sense in which I changed my view. So now you eat meat, but I wonder, is it because we have this, or you and Mike Humer disagree? Is it because you have an empirical disagreement or do you have a moral disagreement? Because I think, This is what the realists want to insist on. A lot of our disagreements are really just empirical. And so like they don't cast out on morality at all. It's just we disagree about what the causal influence of our actions are or what fetuses are like or something like that.
2: Mm, It's it's a very good question. And Mike and I are going to have to sit down and work it out. But he's going to the whole time say that I'm a total idiot for even conceiving of the possibility that he could be wrong about this. And that seems like too strong a position. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I also want to insist, though I think that you can be justified in holding views about morality, and that's not arrogant of you to believe that. There are some people who are still arrogant. I mean, there is such just because you don't have to be arrogant by believing some view doesn't mean that some people aren't <laughs> totally arrogant all the time, and that may well be the case. And Mike, I don't, I don't want to accuse him of anything. I don't know the details, but I know that, and in my case too, I probably hold some view, some views arrogantly. I think that other people are just idiots when they should see things my way,
0: uh, and that may well be. Eric, I want to say thank you for an absolutely wonderful discussion. We've been able to disagree with each other. Um, we've uh, learned lots of things through our clashing of sorts And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. Great.
1: Thanks for having me. Enjoy the show. Love what you're doing.